0: Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm
1: Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich.
0: Today's show, very important and extremely educational. The topic lung cancer did you know it's a woman's disease well it certainly is as you'll hear and today's guest an expert in her field is the perfect person to address this issue she is dr nargis flores an oncologist at the dana farber cancer institute so it's my pleasure to turn things back over to hilde
1: today's topic is about women and lung cancer if i asked most of you what's the leading cause of cancer death in women almost always people will say breast cancer. They've done a great job at getting information out about breast cancer, and it's important. But that's actually not the truth. Lung cancer takes more lives of women than breast, ovarian, and uterine cancer combined. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I was at a major cancer meeting called ASCO one year, Thirty thousand people, a big um, area where people, have, vendors come, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to a book uh, a book stall, and they had a book called Women and Cancer, and they had all kinds of you know breast, ovarian, uterine, all the ones you think of. And I said, well, where where in this book is lung cancer? And they said, oh, that's not a woman's disease. And so. Here's our topic today, women and lung cancer. We're so privileged today to have a wonderful guest, Dr. Nargest Flores, who will help us learn more about this topic.
2: Welcome. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be here. And it's time to talk that lung cancer is a disease of women.
1: Absolutely. If I'm going to flash a statistic at the audience, uh, according to the American Lung Association, lung cancer diagnoses have risen a startling 84% among women over the past 42 years, while dropping 36% among men over the same period. Do you have any thoughts about this?
2: I do have some updated data. It means Perfect. from yesterday. Oh, <laughs> uh, So two things. Uh, we just, uh, the New York Times just published an interview with me and some of my colleagues about this issue. So there's two things that we can uh, break down here. First, the changes in incidence, and second, the changes in age. So tobacco use started first in men. And then in 1950s, on purpose, the tobacco companies got together and noticed that 50% of the population wasn't consuming their products as much as the other part. So that's when the target campaigns for tobacco use started for women. And these campaigns were targeted because they focus on two things that are very sensitive to women at the time and still today. One or weight, the society says we're supposed to be certain weight. And second, (laughs) yeah. Second, the entrance of women to the workforce. So these tobacco companies, I'm not even gonna say the name because they don't deserve any publicity particularly one one is a campaign that said, if you want to be slim, have a cigarette for women in the workforce, for women leaders, women leaders have a cigarette. And they created the cigarettes that are thin and long target to women. So this was on purpose. It wasn't like women smoke because now they have money. No, no. It was target to our insecurities. So that's what we saw I increase in the incidence of lung cancer in the fifties and sixties. It's just no chance is as always, we were targeted. Then what you're mentioning is the incidence, right? So now we see that the lung cancer incidence because of tobacco use has declined, has declined significantly for men, but for women it's steady or rising. And this is what I call the smoking curtain, to make reference to the iron courting after World War II. The smoking cordon is this all this tobacco bias that kind of fuels lung cancer. But when you remove the smoking cordon, two thirds of the patients with lung cancer are women. So lung cancer is a disease of women when we remove that smoking cordon. And on top of that, there's one more thing. Unfortunately, the incidence of lung cancer is rising in younger women. Since 2018, more younger women are getting lung cancer that younger men. And what we define as younger, less than 50. And this is irrespective of tobacco use. 2018, and a new publication actually from yesterday, and you can see my commentary in the New York Times as well, updates that the numbers are actually getting worse. So we're in the face of an epidemic of lung cancer in women, and only a few of us, including you, are screaming out of our lungs, that lung cancer is a disease of women.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, those numbers are startling. Um, upstage lung cancer invests in a in a research project, not necessarily just for women, but for younger people. Um, the epidemiology of young lung would we, we partner with uh, the Adario uh, Lung Cancer Medical Institute and go to. So um, it's something we've been aware of. And we also have a podcast on younger people. But it's just alarming. Um, So what do you think is fueling young women, you know, either biologically or environmentally? What do you think is contributing to this increase?
2: So about the epidemiology of young lung, you know, we're all connected. I'm one of the investigators of the study. So we're all connected. We're all here for the same cause. And the study has been great. And for anybody listening, if you're less than 50, we lung cancer we want your history we want to understand your exposures in urados and younger age um, away from self you know promoting the study um, what is hap- why is happening we don't have a clear answer we know certain things that are risk factors one risk factor particularly for younger women is family history of lung cancer so in september of this year in singapore the Taiwanese study presented data that showed as a woman from Taiwan, as a younger woman for Taiwan, if you have a family history or non-smoking induced lung cancer, you are at a higher risk for lung cancer than if you start smoking cigarettes. So wow. family history is playing a more important role in lung cancer than ever before. But we need to be cautious about the data because it's from a Taiwanese population and which 30% of women, 30% of patients with lung cancer in Taiwan have EGFR mutations. So very different population percentage to take into account. Another thing is radon. Radon exposure is a significant risk factor. The data about radon is mixed. And why is it mixed? Because we haven't agreed in a cutoff between Europe and the US or what is dangerous. Uh, so that's what makes mixed data right there the european cutoff is significantly lower compared to the u.s and also mm-hmm. it's mixed data because it hasn't been collected and i often ask my women in clinic i specialize in younger women with lung cancer when is the last time you checked your radon when i bought the house when you bought the house Oh, 1997 <laughs> you know right so, right there is no campaigns to recheck radon levels and the technology has changed when you checked your radon levels back in 1997, I had a Nokia as a cell phone, right? <laughs> Technology has moved forward a lot. So it's important to recheck radon. And my hypothesis that I continue to study mixed data still is the incorporation of oral contraceptives that the pill revolutionized, you know, the woman's power to control their wishes to have children. But also early on in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, we were exposed to such a high doses of estrogen and progesterone to the pill. And particularly the 90s and 2000 kids like myself, like the millennials, Yes, OCPs were prescribed to teenage daughters in a high, high rate for no clear reasons. I have classmates in high school that have irregular periods that were on the pill. And I was like, but you're not even sexually active. So there has to be, we're starting to explore it, what is the role of these hormonal exposures to women that didn't exist until the pill was widely disseminated? Because we don't see the same race of lung cancer in younger women in other countries in which there is no such a big use of oral contraceptives.
1: That's so interesting. This is the other end of, of um, age, but... I was wondering, as you were as you were talking, what the role of hormone replacement in menopause is, because again, the predominant age for lung cancer tends to be older, even though there is this kind of horrifying um, rise in younger women. But what what are your thoughts about how hormone replacement for menopausal women?
2: most of the information we know about hormone replacement and risk for cancer comes from the women's initiative study that was actually studied by nurses because the doctors didn't want to do it and i'm part of that group the doctors (laughs) group so it's good to know when you're wrong and the women's initiative study was studied by nurses and then you know somebody pick up the credit later but what we know from the women's initiative study is that the women that were in hormonal replacement were a higher risk for developing lung cancer. But there was a high confounding factor. And as a lot of those women were actively using tobacco. So it's unclear to know, but when I have women in hormonal replacement factors, like hormonal replacement drugs, I tend to find alternative ways to take them out of it. For two reasons. One, high risk of clotting. If you have lung cancer, you're at high risk to having a clot. And then if you are in hormonal replacement therapy, you're at a high risk for a clot. We don't need a clot. And second, if the data is mixed and it's so worse, worse and worse outcomes, I have a very good conversation with my woman. And I say, there's other ways we can treat your whole flashes. There's other ways we can treat your vaginal dryness, decreasing potentially risk of worse outcomes. And we're able to transition. But my worry is, A lot of women never had the conversation with their lung cancer doctor. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, in my clinic, you walk in and there's a ball or vaginal lubricant, Mm -hmm. there's a picture or a bulb. So my women feel encouraged to talk about these things and, and the doctor that studies sexual health and women with lung cancer. So they know what they're coming to. Ideally, these women should be transitioned out of it because the women initiative studies show that may increase the rates of lung cancer and may have negative outcomes.
1: So are you talking about just women who have lung cancer or the general population of women ought to be more cautious about um, using hormone replacement at this point? Because I know initially it came out, it seemed like a boon. Then it was like, oh my God, this is terrible, don't do it. And I think more recently it's been, it's really not that big a deal so um poor women (laughs) poor us what what it's like you don't know what to believe
2: something that changes the formulation the initial hormonal replacement it was very high in estrogen so that was a big issue because it was associated with colon cancer and breast cancers significantly increased risk of breast cancer that's what we say no 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 stop that it does decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease because estrogen protects our arteries but with the new formulations, uh, there are ways to replace mostly progesterone that may be safer, but it's good to have a risk versus benefit discussion because there are other ways of treating some of the menopausal symptoms that don't require hormonal replacement. And you also can have hormonal replacement topical for vaginal atrophy or vaginal dryness, and that has limited absorption. So it depends as why is the woman going in hormone replacement therapy And what are the options instead of just giving somebody appeal and say, goodbye, see you in three months?
1: Well, it's so interesting because you were talking about the cigarette that remains nameless. I don't even know if it exists anymore, that that one that had slim in the name that appeals to women and their bodies and their um, attractiveness. I think that was another factor beyond their power and, you know, get out in the workforce, et cetera. It was you're going to look so darn cool with this you know, slim cigarette in your hands. I think uh, I, my sense is that there are a lot of women who turn toward hormone replacement because they're told they're going to look and feel younger, um, longer. So how do you address that?
2: As a lung cancer doctor that specializes in younger women, this is a phrase that I use a lot in my clinic. And I say, aging is a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> Having the privilege to age something we need to appreciate because in my clinic, I see women in their 20s and 30s that I don't know if they will ever be that age. So when I, I I give my woman grace because the society keep telling us we have to look gray, right? right? A woman to have gray hair, you need to dye it. A man has gray hair. Oh, he's a silver fox. There is, <laughs> exactly. no, there is no name for a woman with gray hair. And I remember in the pandemic, so now my colleagues decided to stop dyeing their hair. And I, some people's like are we giving up and i was like yeah but then this dude is a silver fox but then <laughs> she needs to dye her hair so i give my woman's grace and really and Encourage that aging is a beautiful thing, and it's a privilege.
0: If I can jump in here for just a second, I, this is a great discussion. My wife did exactly that. She let her hair go natural, and she says, this is God's work, <laughs> and, and it looks beautiful. I just had a quick follow-up question, and I only jump in once a show because Hilde so great at interviewing people. You, you talked about toxins. You talked about radon. What about the diet and the consumption of alcohol and, say, marijuana and other I- issues, chemicals that are in everything we eat and drink and water? What What is the research showing us about that in general for this issue?
2: one of the challenges is anything that has to do with diet and exercise is poorly funded, as as lung cancer it is, because lung cancer only receives fifteen percent of the funding despite having the being the number one killer. So the data is very mixed. What we do know, I'm going to tell you the facts, is that a plant-based high plant protein diet has been associated with better outcomes for longevity. And longevity equals that you won't die of cancer. So we do know that low animal protein, low trans fats will help because it produces inflammation, it produces free radicals. And free radicals and inflammation associated with cancer development. So we see these populations, and I'm gonna give you an example because I had the pleasure of travel worldwide to talk about women with lung cancer We see these tiny uh, older Italian Greek ladies that probably have more pack years than some of the women here in the United States. And they haven't developed the level of lung cancer. And you're wondering, it's like, but they have more cigarette smoking. So the confounding factor there is diet and exercise. And these women tend to follow the Mediterranean, Mediterranean diet, which is fish, fresh food, vegetables, cheese that are not highly processed like feta cheese, Parmesan cheese. So there is data that shows that that type of diet has been associated with lower risk of all cancers. When it comes to lung cancer, there were some mixed data about selenium. The selenium maybe was dangerous, maybe was protected. So the data is not good there. But what we do know is that these type of lean diets, but not a diet that you do for 30 days. That's what I told my woman. Whole 30 challenge is not good because it's only 30 days and you go back to eating processed meats after that. So we know that that's so important. So these women may have twice as many cigarettes in their life, but they have lower incidence of lung cancer. But these women, some of them never have owned a car. They walk to their house, walk to the grocery store, they walk to their jobs and they eat very healthy food. But the incidence of lung cancer is lower. I don't have the exact data because the study hasn't been done, but we know that those type of diet significantly improved longevity. Um, it, it, particularly if you use processed meats, processed meats has been associated with very poor outcomes, including higher rates of colon cancer. I know
1: one of the things I read that I found interesting was um, that uh, in terms of alcohol use, you asked Jordan. I read that there's a negative correlation. In other words, the more beer, uh, the more uh, whiskey or alcohol-based, whatever you call those things, you know, <laughs> gin and and all the rest. Um, the more of that. No, no, no. Sorry, I I got it wrong. Sorry. I hope you'll cut that out. So as far as alcohol goes, I did read something that was quite interesting. That. That beers and um, regular alcohol had a negative impact on lung cancer or was associated with poor outcomes in lung cancer. However, red wine had a favorable effect on lung cancer. So I've taken it upon myself, um having half Italian blood in me, that i I require a, a small, very small glass of red wine um each day so I don't know what your thoughts are about any alcohol at all
2: so there's a large statement for an ASCO that was done by Dr. Locanti for the University of Wisconsin and we invite everybody to check it out um includes the risk of cancers for each type of alcohol and the level and actually I don't know if you already have them but the Surgeon General is supposed to change the recommendations about alcohol and significantly reducing for women and men but what you say has sound true. And as the type of alcohol makes a difference, mostly what makes a difference is how much do you drink That's and right. how often <laughs> and how much do you hydrate. But we do know that wine, particularly good quality wine, no massively produced, is not associated with better prognosis, but it's not associated with worse prognosis. So it's neutral. And I did learn this recently from a study that crossed my desk that how the wine is processed also makes a difference. Um, And going back to these Italian and Greek ladies, they drink wine, like wine was made back in the day. That's what, you know, will be beneficial. And I have family members are in their nineties. They're Spanish. They drink a lot of wine. And I'm like, how are these women so healthy? (laughs) Is the diet and the little bit of wine. It's about dosing. That's right. right. So your dose I think is adequate. The problem is we're in this culture that you need to finish the bottle. You need to like go to events and socialize and have alcohol. And that's what is harmful is when it goes above the recommendation. And also when they're very highly processed right. beverages. We have been drinking wine for millennia. wine is referenced in the Bible many, many times of right. the, regardless of your religion, it has been around, but I don't know tequila or, you know, how many times we have seen that, but it's about dosing. How much do you drink it? And I want people to hear this, to see themselves as a holistic matter. The reason lung cancer is not only one versus the other, it's your diet, your physical activity, sleep. We haven't even talked about sleep. Your consumption of alcohol, cigarettes, of course, but second hand, smoke is also very important for women because women have been in suicidal roles in which they may never smoke but they smoke with their partners their husbands smoke i currently have several fly attendants from pan Am that have lung cancer but they never touch a cigarette so that's a very woman specific they were fly attendants and they were literally in a tube with recyclable cigarette smoke uh, the majority of the servers and bars for a long time are women and they're also passive smokers. So it's very gender specific. I have a patient that was a secretary or executive for 25 years. And I asked, do you ever have, you know, do you ever use any tobacco? And she's like, no. And I'm looking at her CT scan and it's like, these lungs have so much emphysema and damage. She's like, well, my boss, her office was inside her big office, boss used to smoke two packs of Marlboro per day. (laughs) <laughs> and I saw her, I was like, well, you smoke two packs of my bottle for yes, days. yes. They say the name of the company, but the point is, it's very gender specific. Yes. Passive smoke is most likely to affect women. And then these women don't qualify for lung cancer screening because they didn't actively smoke. But when you look at their lungs and CT scans, they look like they have smoked for decades. So we need to change the guidelines, particularly for these women and men that may be exposed to passive smoke. Because of their occupation, because of their relationship status, and let's talk about all the children that were tracking a car where both parents were smoking.
1: That's right. That's right. And I remember, you know, if you're of a certain age, uh, anybody who took a flight, um, there was smoking on the plane, and and it was like the ridiculousness of restaurants where half the restaurant was supposed to be smoke, you know, non smoking, and the other half. Or it's for the smokers, as though air doesn't travel from one side of a room to another. Or in an airplane, we're going to the bathroom. It was always, they put the smokers in the back, and you'd have to walk through. So, so, yeah, that's so important. And also, um, we're funding another project on Asian women who have a high incidence of lung cancer, um, but also non-smoking Asian women. It hadn't occurred to me when I had that when we had our wonderful guest and discussed screening that, of course, they don't qualify for screening. Um, but by nature of this community, we need to broaden our ideas of who could and should be eligible, just like the age limit has come down slightly. But, you know, as you say, they are younger and younger women. Uh, so. I know when, so I was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2000, the end of 2000, December of 2006. And I was, it was by accident. It was very lucky that I only had surgery, knock on wood, (laughs) and I was fine. But yeah, there's just so much more we know now about lung cancer and diagnoses than, than than, than we did at the time. Back to women in comparison to men. First of all, I'm a psychologist by day, and um, one of the things I know from all of the research in psychology up to a certain point, it was all done on men. Um, And so the assumption was whatever holds for men holds for women. And that's true in the um, medical research area as well. But are there differences in tumor physiology between men and women? Is it that we're all human beings, so the tumors are all the same? What do we know about that?
2: So women and men are equal, but their lung cancer is different. So let's talk for mutations and then we talk about, well, let's talk to histology. Let's go from histology to the molecular part. So histologically speaking, women are more likely to have adenocarcinoma, even if they have previous tobacco exposure. So more adenocarcinoma, men are most likely to develop small cell lung cancer compared to women but this is changing a little bit. We're seeing a rising incidence of a small cell in black women. But adenocarcinoma is more common in women. To the molecular targets, currently we have eight and two to three under development of molecular targets. The first one, the poster child is EGFR, uh, which birth is in Boston. Um, And two thirds of patients with EGFR mutations are women. So we know that Molecular speaking, it's different. ALK mutation is the same. There may be a higher predominance in men, but the women that have ALK, nose, lung cancer tend to be very young, less than 50. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Then we go with HER2. HER2 is one of the new kids on the block, highly more prevalent in women. HER2 is seen in breast cancer too, and is a pathway associated with EGFR, so same family. Um, and her two very common in women, and these women can have a tobacco history and still have this mutation. Kras, which is the most common mutation to date, we know Kras G12C associated with tobacco and it's more common in men. But the other Kras mutation, Kras Diaz and David, and B S and Victory, so Kras G12Diaz and David, G12B S and Victory, are highly more prevalent in women, and are more prevalent in women without tobacco exposure. So molecular speaking, we see differences. So as we move forward, let's talk about response to therapy. Are they different? Well, we know because there are certain mutations that are more frequent in women, they have, if they have the mutation, they tend to have better outcomes. Women live longer than men, regardless of the cancer, lung cancer. I did two large studies, one with 500,000 patients when I was a male That shows that women have significant, better overall survival. But it's also because they have these genes and they're less likely to have comorbidities like COPD, heart attacks, and the past. So they're able to tolerate more therapy. Uh, So response to therapy. Immunotherapy. The big issue with immunotherapy is that only 35% of the participants in immunotherapy trials or immune checkpoint inhibitors were women. So there's still a lot of gender bias that women don't want to be part of clinical trials based on no data. So what happens with that? Well, we didn't include the women in the trials, so we have to figure it out later. Immunologically speaking, we're different. Women versus men. Women uh, need to host uh, fetus or parasite, depends how you want to call it, but you need to host an external being, right? That way only shares 50% of your DNA. So our immune system, women versus men, is different because the woman needs to have, they have to host a fetus, or body needs to host a fetus that only shares 50% of our DNA.
1: Okay. So just the capacity to have a uterus with an open invitation puts you in a position that you're describing.
2: Our immune systems are different because we are designed, created, depends on your beliefs, to have a guess. And that guess is the form of a fetus that only shares 50% of your DNA. Okay. Our immune system supposed to reject things that don't share our DNA. That's why we fight infections, right? Because so we interesting. Don't share. This
1: is interesting. Same so more. As, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah. So as women, we do have to have a guess. We don't have to, but we have the superpower to have a guess. Yes. Uh, as I say, we have the superpower to make toes. I, I don't know a lot of people who can do that. <laughs> and an eyeball. <laughs> so our immune systems are different. So data from Italy shows that women may have less response to immunotherapy compared to men, but the data is to be determined. But this study published in 2018, then in 2020, shows that maybe less response. So we just had this little journey between histologic type, molecular type, and response to therapy. What about end-of-life care? Unfortunately, women have a lot of suicidal roles, even at the end of their journey with cancer. So they're less likely to be referred to palliative care and they're most likely to still be caregivers at the end of their journey this instead is, of being cared for.
1: This is so, this is so important. Um, we've done uh, three or four now um, disparities in access to care in our podcast series. And I'm passionately concerned about this. And um, I know someone, for example, um that's that's made me think about a whole other aspect, which is um, women who live alone wind up with advanced lung cancer. For example, let's take that as an example. They live alone, they have advanced lung cancer, and they are not wealthy. So that's the that's the community I'm thinking of. Um, that would cross race and, you know, ethnicity, et cetera. So what happens to someone who has advanced cancer? not a lot of money, lives alone and needs treatment and care. And so one of the circumstances that I know of was there was a delay in treatment. Once that occurred, which I was pulling my hair out, but okay, I've calmed down. Once that did occur, um, this person was then sent home to live alone, not having funding. And so then the question is, What's our responsibility? So there is palliative care, there are end-of-life um, opportunities, but how often does that happen? I think one of the things that I I feel strongly about and I don't know what you' I if you think this could be one of the answers is to have more navigators, whether they're nurse navigators or just patient navigators where there's someone who is assigned to you when you have an advanced, Uh, cancer, who can stay with you and advocate for you. I feel like it's very hard for a general patient uh, with not a lot of information or knowledge or experience to navigate these very complicated systems alone. Anyway, I'm just, um, ah, you know, I'm just uh, complaining about a terrible situation that I think disproportionately impacts women.
2: So you are correct. So the rates of divorce and separation for women with lung cancer or any other type of cancer are three times higher compared to men. So not not only the the women that are diagnosed when they're single, widow or divorced, but also higher rates of divorce. And I've seen it. I I currently have two women currently in divorce proceedings. And believe me, if I see those two as husbands, Ah, uh, we probably end in jail because it's so unfair yes. right these women were there for the. that's a longer conversation but yes that is true but at dana farber we created a co-created with the cancer care equity program for which i'm the associate director a tailored navigation program to the patients that need us the most so these tailored navigation program that started in 2022 and now has rolled out to many diseases focuses in the underserved instead of just to everybody. So these navigators are actually members of the community where we are targeting, that have been trained to become navigators so they understand the struggles. Because sometimes you can know, you know, I, the navigator we have in lung cancer, her name is Judy. She is an angel that got sent mm-hmm. our way. And these women will go in an Uber, knock on a patient's door and say, hey, you were due for chemo today, what happened? Yes, oh, you're gosh. good? we're going to your chemo appointment. That takes money. It takes money to support the navigation. It takes money for the Ubers, but it works. It, works. it does. It does.
1: It works. Uh, and and it's innovative and it's so important. So as you said before, um, lung cancer is the number one cancer killer and gets the least funding. Um, and that's, that's just wrong. But I think this this is one place, you know. In addition to basic biological research, um, having this um, support to live a life um, with dignity and um, compassion and some sense of of control is is essential. We could talk for probably more than twenty four hours straight. I'm just. So grateful that you joined us today. There's so many more questions and so many more issues to look at in women and lung cancer. And I hope we could call on you again to have another another podcast because this is so very very important.
2: Thank you for the invitation. I for your listeners, I want one message, and it's that lung cancer is a disease of women. If your primary care doctor, as a woman, as a woman, is not listening to you. They think that your chest pressure, your shortness of breath is anxiety. Find a new doctor. It is okay to divorce doctors. You need to advocate for yourself. A lot of my women are gaslighted. Get your medical record, your bag, and find somebody else. Lung cancer is a disease of women. We need to stop gaslighting our women because when they finally have severe symptoms, the treatment options are very limited.
1: This would be a great Uh, topic for uh, a follow-up, which is how, you know, how to assert yourself in a medical situation. I've thought about this for years and years and years. Um, It's not easy. And we have a structure, a power structure that says the doctor knows everything. The nurse is kind of okay. But women are taught to, you know, go along to get along. So, yeah, tune in, everybody. We're going to talk about this again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so very, very much. We'll see all of you. I hope you'll listen to us and all of the rest of our podcasts.
0: To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast, available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.